Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hi, regular listeners. You may have spotted that we've changed our name. It's now Honey & Co. The Food Sessions. So if you hear this sound, it's just us making dinner. Well, that and the fact that we're not allowed to use our old title anymore. It's just been a bit of a thing, but don't worry about it. We hope you enjoy the show. Hi, thank you so much for downloading our podcast, The Honey and Co. My name is Ita Marsulovic. Me and my wife have some restaurants in Fitrovia and a couple of cookbooks. Ever since we opened our restaurant, we've been meeting so many incredible people who are cooking, who are making food, who are writing about food. And we just want to have a little bit more time with them. We invite our favorite people once a month or twice a month to our deli, Honey and Spice. And we sit down and have a longer chat. We cook from their books or from their culture. And this is a recording of these talks. I hope you enjoy it. Tonight we're joined by Michael Rakowitz. He exploded on the London skyline with his uh, fourth prince statue of uh, an Iraqi mythological bull clad in tins of date molasses. It's going to be a, a honey-sweet evening. It's going to be redolent of, of uh, date honey, as we call it, date honey. Because uh, of this guy, Michael Rakovic, who's really, in a very literal, physical sense, you know, materialized in the London skyline suddenly. Literally. Literally, no? Literally. Did you have that, that you were driving past Trafalgar Square and suddenly you see that, that creature that is called Lamasu? Yeah. I pronounce it correctly. Yeah, Lamasu, Lamasu. Lamasu, yeah, yeah. breathtaking, breathtakingly beautiful. And we were lucky enough to, to be in a tiny, tiny way involved in this amazing project in the little uh, brochure that you have, uh, which is full of recipes of date molasses. Uh, we've, we've had um, our little uh, recipe for, for sofrito glazed with uh, date syrup, which is kind of sweet, savory, delicious. Very delicious. Uh, yeah, it's really, really good. It's one, one of the um, dishes that we always come back to the menu around this time of the year because it you know, needs the, the cold weather. Um, and we were we were very fortunate to be part of this project in in a tiny tiny way, and uh, I remember the day of the unveiling of it was such a rainy day, and we came with a bunch of cakes, <laughs> didn't we? A bunch of uh, date molasses cake, yeah. A bunch of date molasses cake, which you're gonna try later, 
and you know how London in the rain is so miserable and and suddenly in the midst of it all was this amazing creature in the middle of great Trifold, the amazing colorful creature and and you don't know if it was going away or coming back or guarding the gates or what is it doing there but it was just magnificent to look at and Michael was on a on a crane going up and down in the rain and we, we were sure he had pneumonia for you know, a month after that, but it was worth it, I'm sure. It, it, it was worth it. It really was. I mean, yeah. it's such a get, isn't it? To, to get the, the, the fourth plant in the middle of London. It's, it must be a huge deal. Or maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. No, I, yeah. I still can't believe they let me do it. But, yeah. How, how yeah. does it work? How does the process work? Well, I was nominated uh, in October of 2015. I got the letter... Um, from the mayor's office that I'd been nominated to submit a proposal. And um, it was a little bit like a problem because my own ethos as a as an artist that works in public space is never to be limited by something like a pedestal. You know, I like to decentralize my work and I do things all over the city and with different people. And, and if I was going to do something on the fourth plinth, it seemed like you know, the thing that I would want to do is something participatory, but uh, Anthony Gormley had done that so beautifully with one another. And um, and so I wasn't sure what I was going to propose. And I have this long-standing project that I've been doing for the past 12 years where I've been uh, reconstructing these apparitions, basically, of these artifacts that were looted from the Iraq Museum. Um, and unfortunately, this is a project that's now grown to include the Mosul Museum uh, and also the sites, the archaeological sites in northern Iraq that were destroyed by ISIS in 2015. And so at the time, I was working with the people in my studio and uh, uh, this organization, well, an institution down at the University of Chicago called the Oriental Institute on finding what was the exact size of this colossal winged bull that had been destroyed by ISIS in one of the videos from uh, Nineveh. And um, it turned out it was 14 feet in length. And when I checked the blueprints of the, uh, the fourth plinth, when they sent me the technical drawings of the pedestal, it turned out that it was exactly 14 feet. And so I started to think, what else would I do? You know, that this was some kind of uh, amazing serendipity. Um, I mean, what, what else can you do? It's almost has yeah. like forced itself on you, it sounds like, a little bit. Yeah, and, and I always look at the histories. So, like, the history of the Fourth Plinth is that it was built in 1841. Uh, it was supposed to have a, a statue of, I think, what was it, King William. And, uh, and the city was bankrupt at the time, so they weren't <laughs> able to afford it. And um, so it was empty. So the sculpture disappears into the ether, and then in 1849, it's this British archaeologist, uh, Austin Henry Laird, who's like digging in Nineveh, and all of a sudden this Lamassu uh, reappears. There's like this archaeological magic trick in a sculpture, you know, that, that would... disappeared uh, and was discovered. And then and disappears again back. and then yeah. comes back, yeah. And so then I started to think about everything that's already in the square, and uh, the fact that you have these British military figures like Nelson on a column and you have, you know, statuary that's made from the melted down cannons of the HMS Royal George. When I think about the material culture of the way that I've been building this 
these artifacts, the surrogates for these artifacts, I'm always using the packaging of Middle Eastern foodstuffs and Arabic-English newspapers that one finds in the states where there are these refugee communities, um, and they're given out for free. So it becomes this other cultural trace that's being used to make these things that are now invisible. And so it just seemed like the fact that the cannons, you know, are now facing off against these Iraqi date syrup cans that represent the victims of war, the weapons of war and the victims of war, um, it, it creates all these moments of tension within that square and allows for something to kind of stand in a, a momentary opposition you know, to, to the militarism that's in that space. And your, your chosen material, say, it was not, you know, it was not recycled cannons, mm. but tins of date syrup. These, yeah. these tins, actually. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it continues uh, an interest that I have in food, which largely comes from um, my mother and my grandmother, who have been, like, the biggest influences mm. on my practice. My grandmother is from Iraq. She uh, and her husband and my mom and her siblings left Iraq in 1946 and came to the United States. And, um, and so food was always a big part of the way that they kept Iraq alive in the house. And, um, and it was, you know, I remember the moment that my grandfather died uh, when I was two. And then I remember the moment when we ate the last of his date syrup. Uh, which, you know, there was a stockpile of in the refrigerator uh, as I was growing up. So, you know, on Passover, Iraqi Jews make the haroset with date syrup and walnuts. And, and after that, you know, my mother was reduced to having to buy it from the supermarkets. And in Great Neck, New York, the supermarkets carried the Israeli brand, which my mother was not thrilled with. <laughs> and, um, and so then in 2004, when I was living in Brooklyn, I went to um, uh, an, an import-export store called Sahadi's. Uh, and they had a long-standing relationship with my, my family since, since they came over in the 40s. And, um, and I saw this big red can of date syrup, and it said product of Lebanon. And I thought, oh, this will be a great gift for my mother because at least it's not, you know, it's from another place. Maybe it'll be better. And when I brought it up to the counter, Charlie Sahadi said, your mother's going to love this. It's from Baghdad. And he explained, and I'm like, this is a weird geography lesson. And he said, no, no, the date syrup's made in the Iraqi capital. It's driven over into plastic, in large plastic vats uh, to Syria where it gets put into these tin plate steel cans And then it's driven over the border into Lebanon, where it gets labeled and sold to the rest of the world. And he explained that during the sanctions, this was the way that Iraqi date syrup companies were able to continue to sell their goods was through this like circumvention. And so I said, well, it's 2004, and it's you know a year after mission accomplished was declared and the sanctions were lifted. And he explained to me that you know it's because anything that says product of Iraq is like labeled for intense scanning by Homeland Security and the Food and Drug Administration and all these other, you know, um, bureaucracies, which makes it... And then they charge the importer for that. So it's considered bad business, business but um, I thought it might make good art, you know, to, <laughs> uh, through another project, import Iraqi dates. And that was what got me started on all this. So looking at those date syrup cans, you know, um, day in and day out, 
you know, growing up and then, you know, more recently is what made me think, oh, well, papier-mâché is not going to last in the London weather. <laughs> so maybe this Lamassu could wear an armor of, of date syrup cans. Which is, and this, and this is something, you know, when you talk about Iraq, but again, there, there's, you know, a lot of these kind of global hotspots that you think, you know, Iraq has been kind of more than pretty much all of last centuries in, in, embroiled in, you know, horrible wars and, and, and dictatorship. It was the Iran-Iraq war for most of the 80s and before that. Mm. Um, and th- there is this, and this is the, the association that we have with the place. You don't think about, you know, yes, Iraq being one of the oldest civilizations in the world, you know, so many things that, you know, began agriculture, for example, started there. Or, mm. or you know, even more recently, the, you know, all of the 19th century and, and before that, Baghdad was such a huge cultural center for the entire Middle East. There was so much, you know, education there. The, it, it was kind of a beating heart of the world. And for the last hundred years or so in the West, you only have this. It's, you know, oil and wars. Mm-hmm. That's the only representation that we get. Yeah. And, you know, I was, I was reading before your, your uh, what your mom said, and that really resonated with me. You can, it's your story, so you should tell it. But, uh, oh, yeah. The one about... Yeah, because yeah. we, do, we do think... Yeah, sorry, but I was just... <laughs> You know that one? Yeah, 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 that one? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and thank you very much. That's that, how we build desire. Yeah. You know? yeah, yeah. Um, when when, when the, the war began in 1991, um, uh, the first era, uh, Gulf War, um, I remember I just, I guess, turned... Uh, what was it, 17? I turned 17 years old in, in October of, of 1990. So um, it was the moment when I felt like I first became politicized. And, um, and because it, I felt split. My, my mom's from Baghdad, but my dad's from Brooklyn. It's an interesting mix. Um, and I felt split, you know, down the middle. And I realized that the place that my grandparents fled from was about to get bombed by the place they fled to. And I grew up hearing these stories about Baghdad that were like these stories that were magical. My grandparents were clearly, clearly proud to be from Baghdad. They considered themselves Arab Jews. They, um, they were heartbroken when they had to leave. And, um, and so I heard my grandmother telling stories but about... I love that expression, Arab Jews, that you don't hear anymore. You don't hear it, and it also becomes like something in and of itself that gets attacked quite often by, you know, um, a kind of right-wing politic that I think, you know, is, is, is something that is about purity, uh, which I'm not interested in. Um, but when I think about, like, these stories, there were, like, you know, I was six or seven years old and hearing my grandmother tell a story about a scorpion that lived in the basement. And, you know, there's nothing cooler, cooler than a scorpion when you're a kid, you know. Uh, and then she told me about these towers that sang the time. And I had a lot of problems with numbers growing up, with mathematics, and, and I had problems reading a clock at that point. And, um, and so the idea of a, a, a tower that sang the time to you was something that that sounded great to me, and she said that she would hear it, like, 
once, and then she'd hear it a little later on uh, the second time. Then she'd hear it the third time, and she knew that it was getting uh, too late to get to the market. So she would go to the market before the fourth or the fifth one. And it would only do it five times. And I found out later that she was telling me the story of the minarets. Mm -hmm. And that for her, those had a kind of secular space, that it was part of the urban landscape for her, that the Adan was not necessarily calling to her to go pray, but it was keeping, keeping the order the of the day. Keeping the pace of life. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so it was a function of public space, of urbanism. And then, you know, when I saw these bil- the, the, the green-tinted CNN images of these bombs falling on buildings that I was never going to be able to see in real life again, my mother saw how vulgar this was, and she, like, quickly drew our attention away from the television. This was at dinner, you know watching the war happen, and she turned to my brothers and I, and she said, you know there's no Iraqi restaurants in New York? And it was like the Sphinx had spoken, because I had no idea what she meant. You know, like, she's a great cook. I didn't know if she meant that she was going to start a, a restaurant. But um, it, was, uh, also, it was her pointing out that Iraq was not visible to us or tangible to us in the United States beyond, like, these images of oil and war. And it was at that point when I realized I was probably going to be spending a large part of my life trying to rescue my grandmother's stories, you know, from not having them disappear into, you know, like what you were talking about, the last 100 years of a kind of vulgarization of a place that is so much more than what, what we've seen through this Western lens. And, um, and then in 2003, when the drums began to beat again towards war, I decided that my mother's prompt about an Iraqi restaurant in New York needed to be fulfilled. And so I began a collaboration with her called Enemy Kitchen, mm-hmm. uh, where we've been cooking these, we've been you know, doing these, these workshops where we teach Iraqi cooking to different um, public groups or different groups, the youth groups. Like the most rewarding one is kids because kids will tell you everything. They don't hold back. Um, and these kids that we cooked with in Chelsea, neighborhood of New York that came from the projects, a lot of them had family that were stationed in Iraq, and they were not allowed to talk about the war in the classroom. And so they were actually able to enunciate, you know, what it was like to be growing up in this war culture. Um, and, uh, And then after, you know, doing that for years, it became a food truck in Chicago, uh, where, um, it's, uh, it's now, staffed by Iraqi refugee chefs that are in Chicago. And uh, the Sioux chefs and servers are American combat veterans. So the Americans are finally taking orders from the Iraqis. Um, And then the Americans are placing orders for their food. Mm -hmm. With It's it's all, I mean, this story just blew my mind because you've no idea where does it begin, where does it, it's the, the, the refugees' food cooked by the veterans. There's the thing with the Saddam Hussein's knives are involved in that. They, well, the, yeah, the, and, and Saddam Hussein's crockery and cutlery. As oh well. yeah, yeah, it's, it's yeah, it's an amazing weird melange. Um, the 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 knives that we use on the the truck um, uh, are made for us by uh, this man named Haidar Syed Musan, who I found out about through Al Jazeera. Um, they did a uh, a feature on him in 2007. Who's Saddam's personal sword maker? Um, and uh, and I thought every, every despot should have one. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, if you want to know how the world works, uh, yeah. after Saddam was overthrown, he was asked to make one more sword, 
and it was for Donald Rumsfeld, you know. So oh. this is this is how power works, you know. Um, that that is one of the it's saddest depressing. thing. <laughs> it's very depressing. Yeah, and um, the worst thing is uh, we, you know, I. I Somebody wrote a letter on my behalf to Donald Rumsfeld to ask where the sword was, and he doesn't know. The The man was a metal worker. He was a metalsmith, and he didn't want to be Saddam's personal sword maker. Like, somebody came in and said, can you make the best sword that you can make out of, like, the best material, no budget, you know, like, and um, or, or endless budget, infinite budget. So he makes his sword, and then the the government agent comes back and says, congratulations, you're now Saddam's personal sword maker. And so I think a lot about the hands, you know, of the people that make things, whether it's cooks, uh, whether it's artisans, you know, and, and how do you make that labor more visible by talking about the craftsperson who actually makes present the things that you're eating with or the things that you're eating. There were the, there were the beautiful story about Haidar is that, like, after the war, he actually, you know, sort of went into a kind of um, a retreat for him and his family. They went to Cairo to sort of wait out the worst moments of the American occupation. And, uh, and he started to make, you know, metalwork for mosques there and different public buildings. And once he moved back to Baghdad, I asked if he would make knives for a group of Iraqis in Chicago who really wanted to make masguf. And masguf is the national dish of Iraq. It means that you, you, know, you make a, a fish, but it's usually carp, which nobody likes to eat in the West, but it's actually quite delicious. Um, uh, you cut it from the back, and you, <clears throat> you put it on two skewers, and you put it, uh, it's butterflied, and it's standing upright next to a fire not on a fire, so it cooks slowly. And in order to cut the back of the carp, you need a really sharp knife because the head is often as like, hard as a stone. So he knew exactly what to make us. And so he made, the first thing he made for us were masguf knives so we could gut the fish and everything. And he had some pleasure in doing that to realize that like, he was no longer making a knife or a, a sword for a despot, but like, you know, for like the resurrection of an Iraqi you know, culinary tradition. And the hands go even further because, like, when you make a kebab, what's really interesting is, like, you, you use a skewer and you make, uh, you, you take minced meat and, and you, um, you, you make a fist and it leaves the impression on the meat. And the veterans and the refugees on the truck have this thing where they take the skewer and, like, it's a refugee fist making one impression, a veteran fist making another refugee fist. You know, and the veterans have talked about how it's nice to not be making a fist around a gun handle or something, you know. So for me, these moments are sculptural because it's like a strange communion when somebody takes that food into their body, they're taking those impressions into their body, and it's impossible for me to, you know, see the provenance of those impressions in a, in a in a different space than than the one that's you know at the table or on the plate. It's a very benevolent space. I mean, you, you don't need to speak, you don't need to say anything, but you are in the same place sharing food, and that's you know already a, a positive fact that's happening. Or maybe with conversation or, or other types of uh, communication may not lead to such benevolent things. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water it starts to just taste bland and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just, I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. But I was I was curious to did you get in trouble from this work? I'm just thinking about, you know, the American administration and you trying to import knives for <laughs> Iraqi refugees yeah. in Chicago. I don't know how do you do you get in trouble or for that? No. No, because uh, we had art shippers deliver it for us, you know, and when you deliver something as art, you can get through a lot of things, you know. Um, what I did get in trouble for was a- another project that was also culinary where um, I actually had food served on these uh, plates that, you- that belonged to Saddam Hussein, which were looted from his palaces and then sold on eBay. Um, but this was the right kind of trouble to get into. How did you get your hands on these plates? Did, eBay. Did you buy them on eBay? eBay, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, in, in this, this project with reconstructing the artifacts, one thing that I learned from Dani George Yuhana, who was the former director of the Iraq Museum, was that uh, the first places that a lot of these artifacts ended up were, of course, in auction houses like Sotheby's or Christie's, uh, but also on eBay. And um, eBay was pretty quick to shut down any kind of um, Mesopotamian antiquities on its website in the aftermath of the looting of the Iraq Museum. But I was interested in what the Iraqis didn't want back or what you know wasn't being um, monitored and could still be trafficked. And one of those things was um, the Christoffel civilware and the chandeliers and um, the, the plates that Iraqis had looted from Saddam Hussein's palaces. And I was amazed. I mean, I, I, use, I use eBay basically as a search engine now. If something happens in the world and it's connected to an object, I try to find it. And I was amazed at this. And this was like a very humble invitation from an arts organization in New York City called Creative Time that I worked with in the past. And they were trying to do this thing where, with a restaurant in the Upper East Side of Manhattan that had given them a bunch of um, 
pro bono dinners, you know, and in-kind donations for different openings that they had throughout the year. And so the idea was that they were going to choose four artists to work with this restaurant called Park Avenue over four seasons. And it would be an intervention with, you know, the chef. And for me, this was always a dream come true and uh, to do anything with a chef. One thing I told this this restaurant was when you go to a, a high-end restaurant, the menu always tells you where your arugula is from or where your meat is harvested from, you know, the farm that things come from. And it's a way of making the diner feel good. And I wanted to make the diner feel bad. And so <laughs> after all these years of having Iraqi date syrup labeled as like product of <clears throat> Lebanon or in the case of Basra date syrup, uh, it actually says uh, product of Netherlands or Sweden, yeah. where there are no yeah. date palms, obviously. Yeah, there, it's up, actually on yeah. that shelf yeah, over yeah. there. Made yeah, made in Sweden. Yeah. yeah. Um, You've heard it here. Yeah. 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 So it's come from Iraq? It comes from Iraq, yeah, but it, it, in order to, you know, to sell without it getting put aside for, for intensive scan, they, they label it as uh, from elsewhere. I said, uh, well, I want you to do something with Iraqi date syrup on this menu. And I want you to say it's Iraqi date syrup. Uh, this is in 2011. Um, and the chef said, well, what do Iraqis make with date syrup? And so the first mm -hmm. thing that popped into my mind was uh, Deviswarashi, you know, or Silan Warashi, you know, which is like date syrup with tahini. And it's the easiest thing to make. You just take a jar of tahini and a jar of date syrup. You could do it now, you know, um, and you mix it together. And it's like, it's kind of like... Um, you know, like a pasty version of, uh, of halva. And, um, we, we always say that it's like uh, peanut butter and jelly. It's exactly. the same kind of flavor profile. Yeah, or a rocky Nutella, yeah. you know? And, which sounds more elegant than peanut butter and jelly. Um, but I, um, I, and so the, the, the chef said, all right, perfect, I'm going to serve a piece of venison on top of the date syrup mixed with tahini. Yeah. And uh, he said, it'll be like the American deer hunt meets the Iraqi date harvest. <laughs> and I said, perfect. And by the way, this was all on a, a conference call on, on, on the phone. And I said, and the one thing, the one last detail is that it's going to be served on plates that belong to Saddam Hussein and were looted from his palaces <laughs> that I bought on eBay. And there was dead silence on the telephone. <laughs> And then the PR person for the restaurant said, I think we're going to get a lot of attention for this project. <laughs> and, um, and so it ran for two months, and just two days before it was supposed to conclude, this project, which I called Spoils, ended up getting interrupted, and we received a cease and desist letter from the American State Department. Really? And the subject of the email was um, demanding the surrender of the Iraqi plates belonging to Saddam Hussein. So it was crazy. It was like the inanimate objects also had to, like, surrender. And I was wondering where the State Department had gotten its request from and uh, they wouldn't reveal it. And, and I said, well, this is the perfect end of the project. Because, <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Uh, because was I it think, you? Did you tip them off? <laughs> no, I swear to God, I never have the guts. Um, but the, the, the way that, uh, that the artifacts, um, when they resurface in other countries, there usually is like this kind of bureaucratic kind of, um, you know, not a subpoena, but like a you know, a sort of summons, you yeah. know, for somebody to surrender something. And I wanted to, I said, all I want to do is be 
at the surrendering ceremony, you know? And they said, well, that, that's fine. We can arrange that. And that ended up happening a lot quicker than I thought. It was in, in December of 2011, and I just happened to be in New York where this was supposed to take place. And I went to Creative Times offices, and I started to kind of pack it up. And these two agents from the Forfeiture and Assets Division of the Department of the State were there, and making sure that the plates were not fake. They arrived to make sure that they were actually you know, legitimate and authentic. How how'd you verify that? They were tapping on the Wedgwood China because it's supposed to make like a certain kind of sound, you know, because some of the plates were gifts from the Queen of England, oh. uh, okay. but to the King of Iraq, King Faisal II, yeah. and Saddam was using the King's plates in his cupboard. So there's this weird thing where Saddam was looting also. Um, and... And so they determined that it was all, you know, uh, authentic. And I said, well, where are you going now? And they said, we're actually going to the Iraq mission to the UN to turn these over. And whenever the artifacts... To return them. Exactly. So whenever the artifacts are returned to Iraq, it happens at those embassies on foreign soil. And I said, well, can I go? And they said, you can't ride with us. And so I followed the car in a cab... <laughs> And we oh, ended. That car. Yeah. <laughs> Did you really? Yeah. And and the the forfeiture and assets uh, agent said, you know, this 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 order to collect the plates came directly from D.C. And they said that Nuri Al Maliki had been in 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 Washington D.C. that Monday. We, this was a Tuesday, and so he said that he was meeting with Obama, and Maliki apparently reads the New York Post, and the New York Post had actually published an article back in November with the title that said, Saddam does the, dish, the dishes. This is how my work gets reviewed now, you know? And, um, Could and, do a low worse. Yeah, right. And Maliki said, I want these plates back. And Obama made the call, you know, to have somebody contact Creative Time to have the plates picked up. And uh, what we found out was that the plates were actually on Maliki's private plane back to Iraq that Wednesday. And on Thursday, they announced the end of the Iraq war. Um, and Mar American forces pulled out. And so on the New York Times... That was the one condition. <clears throat> the plates... <laughs> that, that was the one thing that they needed. They say, I, look, we can put this all behind us. Give us those plates back. I like to think that I played a big role in, in all oh of this. Yeah. Uh, we had 18. 18. And... Um, yeah, and so they, on the front page of the New York Times, when they announced the end of the Iraq War, at the very bottom of the page, you see this picture of the plates, you know, <laughs> being repatriated. And it's like this minor object that tells a bigger story. And uh, for me, you know, like that, that, those plates, the surface is bitter, of course, you know, and there's different layers of bitterness in terms of who used them, but also how they got to people's tables was through this American invasion, the Iraqis liquidating, you know, their heritage and then selling it to American soldiers. The one thing I didn't mention was that the people who sold it to me on eBay, one was an American soldier that was stationed in Iraq at the time and had bought them on these flea markets that happen on American bases. And the other was an Iraqi refugee living in Michigan whose father was a high-ranking officer in the Republican Guard and happened to have these plates you know, as part of his collection. And so the sourcing becomes important too, in that, that conversation, you know, when you think about collecting and who you're buying from. And, and all of that was made apparent on the menu. So as people were eating this very complicated meal, 
you know, talking about how much they loved the food but hated the project, you know. And um, the restaurant at one point, I remember I was in Yom Kippur services that year in 2011, and my phone kept vibrating. And I thought it was an emergency with family because uh, it was a New York number. And the person from the restaurant um, said, I'm sorry to bother you. I know why. I know you're in synagogue. But there's two things. One, we have gotten tens of thousands of pieces of hate mail about this project. And two, it's our most popular item on the menu. Can we get maybe ten more of Saddam's plates on <laughs> eBay? You know? And I told them, no, I'm sorry, we cornered the market. You know, there, there wasn't any more. And, and so it's like when you have those sweet and sour mo- moments, like in Arabic, one of the things they talk about with Iraqi cooking is that it's hamud helu, you know? Yeah. And if you make sweet like... Sweet and sour. Exactly. And if you make kubba, exactly. If you make kubba that's uh, hamud, you want your sauce to be helu and, and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Like those flavors are supposed to be held in tension. You know, I think now it's kind of the, this Namasu is a London Lamasu, sorry, mm-hmm. is a Londoner now. Yeah, mm-hmm. he is, isn't he? Yeah, he is. Um, but he's not. We're not. We're not keeping him forever, are we? No, inshallah, it'll end up in Iraq. I mean, that would be that would be my my hope for the continuation of the circle of its life is that it, um, you know, that right now I like that it's. It's outside, not like the ones that are inside the British Museum. Um, its wings are raised. It's looking southeast, towards the Foreign Office, towards Parliament. But but it's also looking southeast towards Nineveh in the hopes that it could return. And and it, and it has its back towards a museum. So it's it's leaving a museum, not going into one. And um, and I think it would be wonderful if you know this. This lamasu that's been made of these cans of date syrup, many of which can't say that they're from Iraq, um, you know, that's been made by these British hands, these amazing artisans and artists who work at this place, the place that made it, uh, which is called the White Wall in Erith. Um, wouldn't it be amazing if, like, you know, something from England were to be extracted? and brought to Iraq as opposed to the other way yeah. around. And, and then we can do the Parthenon again with feta tins. Perfect. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Well, there's so, so much scope there. So much yeah. scope. I think, yeah, I think that, that'll be amazing. I hope, you know, I hope it will get there. And actually, I'd really love to see him. The him? Yeah? It's a him, yeah. 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 To see yeah, him it's there, very clearly sure. a him. Yeah. yeah. Well, you never know. Well, that's true, you, right? You know, I don't know how the yeah. Lama Su identifies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you have, you know, speaking of the Parthenon from Fetitins, you have, you know, a few more projects on the go. You have uh, the book coming out that's yes. connected to this, to the Lamasu and the Great yeah. Syrup. It's not ready. Yeah, it's not right. coming out till June, so you'll, you'll have to bear with. But that's kind of, in a way, that's the heart of the project. It's everyone, it's recipes, it's actual food. Yeah. Well, I just thought with all of these date syrup tins, it makes people wonder where's all the date syrup, right? <laughs> and um, <clears throat> pretty much eighty percent of it goes to our kitchen. But, you know, <laughs> someone needs to do something with the rest. They're swimming in it downstairs. Yeah. What what I wanted to do is again, like coming back to where we started and thinking about uh, what I do as an artist, and to not be limited by the plinth. I thought about 
ways to extend the plinth into the cupboards and the bellies of Londoners. And, um, you know, there, there's a lot of uh, places on Edgware Road, you know, and places like like Honey and, and Spice that, um, that sell, you know, the Basra brand of date syrup. And I often hear people talking about how, you know, Zatar is now in places like uh, Marks and Spencer and Waitrose because of the, the visibility, you know, of, uh, of cooking, you know, from, from the Middle East, the increased visibility of that. And um, the one thing that I'm always thinking about when I'm making these artifacts is that they're surrogates. You know, these lost artifacts are surrogates for the lost lives of the Iraqis that often don't get uh, spoken about the way that the, the cultural heritage does. But these things for me are never able to be separated. And, um, but it's also connected to the ecology and the landscape, the actual land and the non-human victims of the, the wars. And so Iraq's chief export after oil in the 70s was dates. And it's known for having the best dates in the entire world. There's over 600 different varieties of dates. And the date is to Iraq what the cigar is to Cuba and what, you know, cheese is to, to France. And I'm not sure what it would be for the England, but, you know, Marmite. Um, but the, the, um, the fact that the, you can actually see the depletion of the date palms over these years of war, that it was 30 million date palms in the 70s that then dwindled to 16 million at the end of the Iraq war and after the 2003 invasion only 3 million remained and so those date palms have suffered the fate of the people and um, one of the things I've often wondered is is you know knowing my own uh, experiences understanding that dates don't leave Iraq uh, and end up in these western markets and the date syrup can't say that it's from Iraq which ends up resulting in like a loss for the people selling this, uh, what would it mean for Iraqi date syrup to actually end up in places that are a little more high visibility and high traffic? This would be a win-win situation to rebuild the, the, date, the date groves and to actually um, find ways to rehabilitate uh, the actual land, not just the economy. And, um, and so the date Syrup recipes are kind of landscape of the Iraqi chefs and the chefs here in London, like you and Sarit, you know, who are doing this amazing uh, cooking that's a melange of all these different places and like a city like Jerusalem. But uh, you were already familiar with date syrup when we started speaking, and this is one of the reasons why you're in the book with your sofrito recipe and a honey a date honey cake and... Yeah with Ginger, and Lamis Ibrahim, who's this fantastic Iraqi cook and is the author of the Iraqi cookbook, uh, and is a Londoner. She has recipes in it. My mother's in it, of course. And, uh, and to be able to kind of allow for not only the food to do the talking, but allow for the people in London who are part of this community to also do a lot of the talking and be able to talk about that that thing that, that was inside those cans is not being just a, a curiosity, but actually like a life source. In Iraq, in some places, it's traditional to put a date into the mouth of a newborn baby, so its first taste of life is sweet. The title of the, of the cookbook is uh, A House with a Date Palm Will Never Starve, 
which is a translation of an Iraqi proverb. And it's actually one of the first statements on landscape architecture because it's not just about the dates that will sustain people. It's about the way that the tree also provides shade and its leaves provide material for making chairs and baskets. And when the tree dies, it will give its wood to help this family that is hopefully expanding, expand, you know, their, their house, you know, so it's meant to kind of like speak to these ecologies and this idea of a circular life source that at this point has been interrupted. So we're going to be eating um, chicken cooked in date molasses and chestnuts and golden raisins. Uh, sweet potatoes with a date molasses and smoked almonds. There's a lot of nuts in today's food. If anyone has an allergy, tell me now. I've uh, just suddenly realizing. Um, aubergines with the yogurt and uh, silan or date molasses. Drizzle on top. And this is uh, Reem's recipe. Yeah. Green cassis. Yeah, yes. Uh, uh, she was here. Like, I know that podcast was ginger and date molasses cake to, to finish. So it's very sweet. Like I said, it's got a lot of nuts in. So please let us know if that's an issue. Uh, uh, big hand to this guy, please. Thank you very much, guys, for you for coming. Thank you. This was the last recording of this season. It has been such an interesting season for us. It's so much fun. Next season is going to be all about makers. It's going to be people who make olive oil, people who make butter, people who roast coffee. It's going to be fascinating. If you want to come to one of the talks, all the information is goes on our mailing list on honeyandco.co.uk. That's our website. If you are listening and if you're enjoying it please 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 rate us on itunes or wherever you're listening it helps us so much and it makes that podcast reach so many more people with a huge thanks to hester Kant for producing and the music is by the lovely alice russell thanks for listening bye felicia's Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness, and they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.